Well, this story that we have here before us this morning in John 9 is an illustrated sermon of sorts. It, 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 it focuses on and illustrates for us the main theme of John's gospel, the, the, the theme of darkness and light. He develops this theme, John, by drawing on several images of the Old Testament that relate to light. In, in uh, verses like Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light, and it was good. God separated light from darkness. That, that's an image that's in his mind. Isaiah, again, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light shined. Again in Isaiah, this time in chapter 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoner, those who sit in darkness. And then in the final book of the, Old, of the Old Testament, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And so he's taken them, that imagery and he's saying to us that that imagery of light is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, in him was life and the light was, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Then in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment, the light, that is Jesus. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their works. They were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then we have the immediate context of our passage. We're in John 9 and John 8, the immediate context. Jesus said to them in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in our passage, John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus is going to illustrate this truth to us, this truth of light and darkness, by using this situation with a man born blind from birth. And so many words, what Jesus is saying is, in case you didn't get it, when I said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, he says this, let me show you now what I mean. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, this story. We're going to do it under three headings, this radical reversal that takes place. Most of our time will be spent there. And then we're going to look at the response to this, to this change in this blind man's life, and then we're going to look at the result of it. And so reversal, response, result. First, the reversal. What I want you to do this morning, and it shouldn't be hard, the text is there before us, to use your imagination. Uh, imagine with me, if you will, as difficult as it may be, that you were born blind from birth. Imagine you never saw the light of day. Imagine that you never saw the face of your friends, of your family members. Imagine you never saw the sun kind of shining down upon the earth and, and glistening 
um, maybe over the face of the ocean or, or you know, in the, through the trees and the shadows, all that. You couldn't see any of that. Now imagine you were born blind, but not in our century, not today, but back in the first century. Back when there was no school for the blind, there was no Braille, there was no social programs to help uh, those without their sight, there was no care or concern about your condition, you were just an outcast, and all there was was darkness. That was the dark world that this blind beggar was born into and he lived in. He, he never saw these things that we just mentioned, and many, many more. It was all darkness. He was never given any reason why he was born this way. His parents had no explanation. All he had to look forward to was a difficult life of misery. He'd never learned to read. He, he would never look into the eyes of a woman and see her look back with eyes of love. He, he wouldn't experience that. No woman would marry him in the first century, a man born blind. She couldn't handle the stigma. She couldn't handle the stares and the sarcastic remarks. And so would he not only have his sight, he, he, he would not experience the love of a spouse. He was alone. He did live the defeated life. Life in isolation, despite the love of his parents, and I'm sure she, they had, um, that I'm sure they showed him, but it was a life of no hope, a life with no real purpose, a life with no real direction, uh, a life knowing that things would never get better. In fact, all that would happen is day after day, as I, he grew older, they would get worse. As an adult, this was his teen years back then, he was a teenager, he, um, he would have started begging. That's what he would have to do. That was his job. Thus we read, um, he was a well-known beggar, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg, verse 8. See, this is the only way for an adult, blind male to survive in the first century in Jerusalem. And so he'd have to become a really good beggar. He would have to be wise as he possibly could. And he knew that the best place for him to beg to get the most income, to make the most money, was to be at the synagogue on the Sabbath. See, on the, on the Sabbath, he'd be willing to give. And why? Well, you know, some people would just give because they felt guilty over their own sin, and they seen this man. Others would come out and give because they wanted to show their friends how gracious they were. So they were doing it for themselves in both cases. Others would come out because they just felt sorry for the man. He knew this, and so he would be there begging. In either case, it was the best place to beg, the best place for him to be. All of life I'll be repeating this. All of life took place around the synagogue in those days. And so, every Sabbath, he would be there. And he would, it would his blind eyes, and he'd have his hand open wide, hoping to receive some money. It was humiliating. It, it, uh, but he, it's all he had. Well, now imagine there's a particular Sabbath. He's been doing this for years, and he, every su Saturday, not Sundays, every Saturday, he wakes up and he makes his way to the synagogue, and it's the same old routine, but all of a sudden he hears this conversation this time. 
these students are talking to their rabbi. And they, they, they look at this man and they say, Rabbi, see that guy there? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And they forget that he can't see, he can hear. So he hears this. It, it would have brought him indignation, as if things weren't bad enough. Now you're mocking me, or you're even blaming me for being blind. I just, I just spent my whole life like this. Um, he, I, I'm sure he was angry and wanted to speak up. I'm using my imagination, but for himself. But then he hears that rabbi start teaching. And his rabbi says to the students, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. The first time, probably the greatest words he ever heard, the first time somebody came to him with an explanation. Why am I here in this situation? He was blind, the rabbi just said, so God could display his glory in him. Imagine he's thinking, someone finally cares. Someone sees me as as created in the image of God and not just a blind beggar, a sightless sinner. And that would have been amazing to even hear because I'm sure people paid no attention to him at all. And now he hears these words, but what happens next is even greater. Uh, It's going to kind of turn this man's world upside down. The teacher, the rabbi who said those words, now approaches him. Verse 6, having said these things, he spits on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, that's kind of strange to us and a little bit repulsive, to be honest. But in the ancient world, it was quite common Saliva, and especially the saliva of some distinguished person, was seen to have curative uh, qualities to it. And so Jesus uses this myth. I mean, it, and he, obviously he doesn't believe that. There's not the power is not in the saliva. But he takes that custom, and he uses that custom to get this patient of his, this blind beggar's, attention and confidence. That's what people thought in the day. So he uses that situation. And so there must have been something in the voice of Jesus that gave this blind man the confidence to do everything he said. Because what Jesus was asking him to do was to violate the Sabbath. And at least as the Pharisees understood it. See, Jesus made clay. And that was a violation of work on the Sabbath. And... Second, according to the Pharisees, it was unlawful to put spit on the eyes on the Sabbath. I don't know if they were spending the rest of the week spitting on each other. (laughs) But on the Sabbath, you know, you just, you don't do it. This is what the law stated. As the fasting spittle, it is not lawful to put it so much as upon the eyelids. And so although he couldn't see this teacher... He didn't spend much time with this rabbi. He knew there was something different about him. And and he had authority in his voice as he spoke. And and so it it compelled him to listen. And so he was willing to take the risk. What was the risk? To be ostracized by the powers of Judaism. And it would make his misery that he's experienced all his life a thousand times worse. But he does it. 
See, if you think begging and being blind was tough, being cut off from the synagogue was worse. You were a complete outcast. Uh, why, this is why the Pharisees were going to excommunicate him, or they could excommunicate him. And so they were, he was wary. I'm sure he was worried. It was no small decision for him. I mean, we look at it and see him, he's healed, so of course he's going to follow Jesus, but he had to weigh things. He knew what was about to happen or could happen, and yet he listens. He couldn't remain passive. He must obey. He already got his sight back. He could kind of slip out. He knew he couldn't. He must go and wash and do as Jesus said. And it's a good thing he did, because as he removed the spittle, his, his eyes were opened. And, and so we read in verse 7, he went and washed and came back seeing. And so right before he gets his sight back, he has to make a decision. Do I obey Jesus or not? Am I going to go against the Pharisees? There's the potential here that not only am I blind, but now I can be taken away from the synagogue. What do I do? He obeys. And his life, his life is just turned upside down simply by listening and obeying Jesus. Everything changed, pun intended, in the blink of an eye. John 8, whoever follows Jesus will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the promise, and that's what's happened. Remember, I said this story of the blind man is a sermon on those words from John 8. Jesus chose this man. There were a lot of blind men, a lot that he didn't heal. He chose this one to demonstrate what he means by saying that I am the light of the world. And that's what he's showing us here. It's a physical sign, a literal historical story, a physical sign of a spiritual reality. That's the point he's making here. We are all blind spiritually. That's the issue. And we all need Jesus to give us our sight back if we ever plan on seeing things correctly. See, as soon as you realize that we're more prone to turn to Jesus to receive our sight when we, when we realize who he is. See, like this man, we are incapable to see the truth apart from Christ. Scripture says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so apart from encountering Jesus, we cannot see spiritually. Uh, We cannot know God truly. We cannot know Jesus truly. We cannot experience that world-shattering, life-altering reality of going from this spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. This radical reversal of living in darkness to all of a sudden living in the light. That's what this story is telling us, and we need to understand it on a spiritual level. That's the story in a nutshell. See, we are all, beloved, understand, we're all born blind into this world. We're all spiritually blind beggars in desperate need of Christ to open up our eyes that we may see him correctly and receive Spiritual riches, one writer says, that money cannot buy. And see, if you're here today, and if you're listening on a line, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, if you have not seen him for who he truly is, 
then I need to say this. You are blind. You are spiritually blind. That's not an an accusation or an insult. It's the reality of all of us at one point. Until the light of the gospel penetrates your dark soul, you are blind. And so the question is, will you go on living in darkness? Will you remain blind while others walk in the light? Do you want to be left blindly stumbling around in this world with no real meaning? I mean, you may find some things to do to keep you occupied, some things you enjoy even, but someday you'll face death, and then you'll have to ask the question, what was my real purpose here? Uh, uh, if, if that's not how you want to live your life, if your answer to that is, no, I don't want that, if you want to receive your spiritual sight, well, then this is what I say to you with the authority of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Go and wash yourself in the cleansing blood of the crucified and risen Christ, and you will get your sight back. That is the promise. It's that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You were blind, but now you can see in Christ. It's that simple. But I will say this although it's simple, it doesn't make it easy. There is a cost. And that leads to our second point the response. You would think that after this story, I mean, imagine here right now. If someone was here blind and I prayed for them, uh, we won't do the spitting part, but I prayed for them and they got their sight back. I mean, everybody, you may have questions like, what's going on here? You could see the all that would come over and you'd be like, wow, this is amazing what's happening. There would be great uh, uh, rejoicing over the miracle. That's what we would think. But look what we see. First, uh, they even question, was this the right man? Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, nah, but he's like him. And this must have bothered him. Why? Because you see in the text, he keeps saying, I'm the man. And they're like, nah, it can't be you. You have your sight. Um, He's got this exciting news and they won't believe him. And so uh, they bring him to the Pharisees. And here things get even worse. They begin, the Pharisees begin with suspicion. Really, what they believe to understand is here, if it had anything to do with Jesus, it was a fake or a lie. Jesus isn't who he is, says he is. He's a sinner. He's a false prophet. Therefore, if you attribute anything good like this to Jesus, you're lying. That's how they first thought. Um, They were at verse 16. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And so they're suspicious and divided because verse 16 continues, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And so they're confused. And so there was division. And so they continue questioning. They said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he says he is a prophet. See, in the end, he just wasn't believed. They didn't believe it, so they call his parents to make sure it's him. Right? And it gets worse for him. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? And how then does he see? Now, his parents are a little scared. 
The Pharisees in the synagogue, remember, all of life revolves around the synagogue. Not just your Sunday or Saturday worship, all of life revolves around the synagogue. And so they are worried. Could you imagine being this blind man? He finally sees his parents, and they're like kind of keeping him at a distance. Um, He was seeing them for the first time, and then here's the words. We know that this is our son. I mean, you can imagine saying, thanks, Ma. You know, and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know. He just said it. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then we're told. At first glance, you're like, oh, they're giving him, you know, he's an adult now. Let him speak for himself. This is why they did it. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Here's their son for who knows how many years, at least 16, we'll say, years. He's blind. He now sees, and they won't stand with him. They're afraid. He finally has his sight. He finally can make a difference in his own life. Things can change, but they feared man. And they feared the consequences. And they're unwilling to look at the evidence before them. And they abandon him. You deal with him. And if that wasn't bad enough, the hits just keep on coming. Now the Pharisees address him again. And they move from suspicion now to attacking him. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, give glory to God was a phrase used as cross-examination. Basically, he's saying, speak the truth. He's in the courtroom, as it were, now. Speak the truth in the presence and the name of God. Stop lying to us, they're saying. Um, uh, Speak the truth. And so what's he to do? Well, we see what he does. The man doesn't give in, and so now they begin to revile him, says verse 28, saying, you are his disciple, but we're the disciple of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. But he stands his ground, and they all but had enough. And so they begin insulting him, and finally now, verse 34, they excommunicate him. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You see, this man, it takes a stand on who Jesus is. They will not listen to him. And so they began with suspicion. Then they revile him. Then they add some insult. And then they finally use force. They force him out of the synagogue and get him away from the temple. And so here's this blind beggar filled with joy. He's got his sight back for the first time. And his parents doubt him. Uh, his par- the people doubt him. His parents abandon him. And the Pharisees, well, they beat him up, as it were. They revile him, insult him, and excommunicate him. Beloved, that's the fruit of receiving sight from Jesus. And so the question becomes, was it worth it? Or was gaining sight worth worth all that loss? Sure, he got his sight back. That was great. But now he's an even greater outcast in society than he was beforehand. At least before he could have gotten some sympathy. 
at the synagogue. But now no one would want to see, be seen with him at all. He was excommunicated. And in the eyes of a Jew, that meant you were completely separated from them, but more importantly, from God. Now, they were wrong. We know that. But was it worth it? He listened to Jesus. And we know the answer. We know the answer. That's the third point, the radical result. No sooner was this man cast out of the synagogue. He's shunned. His parents protected themselves. They got to stay in the synagogue. And he's shunned from the synagogue that what happens now is Jesus comes to this man and visits him and offers him something greater than the physical sight. Look there, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus knew. He knew how heavy the burden was on this man. And so he seeks him out and he cheers him with these words of comfort. You see, Here's the truth. If our Christian witness, if our believing in Jesus separates us from others, from people we love, the result is it it brings us nearer to Jesus himself. When we're being abused for our faith, when we're being insulted for our faith, when we're being cast aside, you know, I prayed earlier for the persecuted church. Yes, we're not being persecuted, but let's face it, we get cast aside. I was watching a what's called a stream where people talk and interact um, and then there's a chat room and people can type things in it and this one I'm assuming a young teenager because most of the people in these things are young teenagers types in the chat I just want you to know to the person who was on the screen on the screen I want you to know that Jesus Christ came to this earth to forgive us of our sins. We're all just shared the gospel, basics, just a little sentence. You know, he put it in the chat. And you would think, okay, well, what's happened next? Well, everybody mocked him. Well, they did. But more importantly, they had no categories whatsoever to comprehend what he was saying. It just seems so foreign and just, I'll be blunt, stupid to them. And they were laughing and mocking out of their ignorance and, and, and this guy's being mocked. Now, nobody knows who this guy was. It's a chat room, so he probably didn't care. But my point is, you could be pushed aside. You're going to be mocked when you go to someone and say, by the way, you're a sinner, and God came to earth. He took on human flesh. Jesus lived perfectly for you, and he died on the cross and rose again. And that's the only way to be saved. You're going to be mocked. And when you're mocked and, and people reject you, maybe it's even your family that rejects you, Christ is there. Christ is there. Jesus is always true to those who are true to him. That's the radical result of persecution. When we're persecuted for our faith, maybe not physically, but in different ways, we see and we experience the tender mercy of our Lord. But there's another result from this persecution. And it kind of follows on the last. See, the Pharisees are are plunging themselves into deeper darkness. But what's happening to this man in the midst of this is uh, the light's beginning to shine, if I can say this, a little bit brighter when it comes to who Jesus is. His faith and understanding begin to grow. Look at the progression here. Look at verse 11. The man called Jesus, they ask him who it is. He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. 
So he's just a man. And then in verse 17, so they said to him again, to the blind man, who do you say that he is? He says he's a prophet. And, and then he realizes in verse 33, if this man were not born from God, he could do nothing. And so, finally, he comes to believe, we read in verse 35 and 36, that he's the son of God whom worship should be given. Jesus heard that they had been cast out. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The persecution pushed this man from seeing Jesus as the man to a prophet to God, a man sent by God, to being God himself, to being someone he is to worship. One writer said, it's a tremendous thing about Jesus that the more we know him, the greater he becomes. You know, as somebody said, when I first came here, I've heard this line in the past that the most popular I've ever been was the first day. And the more you get to know me, <laughs> and as the years go by, you know, we, we know people, the closer we get to them, we say, oh, well, they're not this or they're not that. I noticed this about them. But that's not so with Jesus. The more we get to know him, the opposite is true. Uh, the greater he becomes. And, and, and so this should be the effect of opposition on us all. If we're faithful in giving our testimony and being who Jesus wants us to be, despite the opposition, we, we can be promised here, we are promised here, a, a kind of a, a greater presence of Jesus and a greater knowledge of him. See, if, you, if your understanding and your relationship with Jesus is weak, it may be that you're not going out there and being faced with the need to know him more. That the greatest thing that could happen in your life uh, is to know him better. You haven't come to that point. See, here's the reality. I, I don't think this man, as much as, I mean, real, uh, the story would suggest to you what? That he's going to be thrown out of the synagogue. He hears this about his parents. Uh, they're mocking him, as it were. I don't think any of that really bothered him in the end. Why? Because he was consumed with Jesus. He was consumed with Christ. That's the result of the persecution. Persecution in Christ. And Christ draws closer to us. And we grow in more knowledge of him. This is why Paul says, I, do, what, do your worst. I know Christ. I know Jesus. The hymn writer got it right. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. See, turn your eyes upon Jesus. In the midst of all that's going on, fix your eyes on him. And then the things that trouble you on earth grow dim. Why? Because you're consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. In closing, let me, let me say, in light of the purpose of this short series, obviously we're focusing on reaching people with the light of Christ as it were. 
And there's a lot to learn here about witnessing and sharing. And, and we're going to come back, like I said, next week to look at some of the details. Let me close with what I think is most important here, at least as we start out. If you're going to be a faithful witness, if, if, if you're going to be bold in your proclamation, you're not, you're not going to fear what man says, then what needs to happen is you need to be overwhelmed by the change that Christ has brought into your life. You need to often remind yourself that once you were blind, blind, but now because of Christ, now because of Jesus and he has this, his decision to give you light, now you see and it's only because of him. You need to remind yourself that once you were just a depraved beggar, but now, because Christ has decided to, to shine his light upon you, now, now you are a child of the king. You are a child of the king. You belong to him. You were undeserving. You were unworthy. You were unfit. And yet Christ came and he saved you. We are told by the Lord, for at one time you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so when we remember that, when we remember that, when we reflect upon that, when we meditate upon it, we can't keep our mouth shut. We have, we have to tell others. You can experience this light. You're, you're stumbling around in this world in your darkness, and you can know the light of Jesus Christ. Why? I know it because I've experienced it. I once was blind, but now I see. And so I say to you, in the words of Christ, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word, for this reminder. Father, I pray that the, the light of Christ would shine in our hearts and that we would indeed be consumed by him and, and that we would let our light shine to others. Give us the strength to do that. In Jesus' name.